Hi, this is Janke Arte, and I'm the director of the Asia program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to Inside China, the podcast that will leave you smarter about what China's thinkers think. Over the last few years, it has become much harder to tap into the discussions that Chinese intellectuals are having. In-person exchanges have become a lot rarer, and the space for debate has been shrinking for a number of years now. We want to make an attempt at changing that, and will engage in a conversation with some of the best Chinese academics, researchers, writers, or journalists on the entire range of topics in Chinese internal debates that matter most to Europeans. In this podcast, we will be asking our guests questions, helping us to understand concepts, framings, and ideas that are at the heart of current Chinese discourse. Today, we're recording from ECFR's Paris office, and we'll be joined by the fantastic Liu Hongqiao, who is an independent policy consultant and an award-winning journalist focusing on China's emergence and its global impact on the environment, biodiversity, energy, and the climate. She's very well known for her TED Talks as well, which made her very famous online, and we are very, very delighted to have her here. We're particularly keen on talking about COP27 and the outlook of China's energy transition more broadly. Hongjia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Yanka. So as a leading journalist on China's climate policy, would you say that climate change has become a significant topic for Chinese researchers and policymakers? Have you observed any changes in the research in the past, for instance, in the, in the last 10 years? I think for the researchers and the policymakers, uh, climate change has definitely becoming a significant topic. It's also an increasingly important priority for the policymakers as well, as we can see very recently, China announcing dual carbon climate pledges and the one plus M policy framework. Can you briefly explain, maybe you just mentioned the dual carbon goals. Can you briefly explain um, what those are um, and what that means in practice to, to have those dual carbon goals? I think that's really important for the kind of tap, like, connecting China to the international discourse. Yeah, so so China's leader Xi Jinping announced uh, that China will peak carbon dioxide, will strive to peak carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060 in uh, back in I think September 2020. That was the second largest, well, the second international climate pledge that China has made uh, on tackling climate change. The last one was back in Copenhagen in 2009, and this pledge will help to prevent uh, further 0.2 to 0.3 degree of global warming, and which is by far the largest. Um, uh, this is the single largest uh, pledge that will have the most implications on our efforts to uh, preventing uh, further global warming. You mean on the global efforts of preventing global warming, basically? As an, indi- as an individual country. Yeah. The second largest one was a uh, significant one. Uh, is the one uh, that came up by India. Yeah, and this is the this is where the kind of where the the international discussion that China is kind of leading on this, um, where this is kind of connecting to the international discussion, right? Where with the pledge that Xi Jinping has made at the UN level, where this was then for the first time putting China very on the map in terms of global leadership on climate goals, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, when China came up with this pledge, it already positioned itself as an international leader on climate change. So as you know, on the CBD, uh, the Convention on Biodiversity, uh, China wants the leadership, wants China, and 
actually perceives China as a leader on ecological civilization, uh, not just domestically, but also on the international uh, global stage. Let's talk about ecological civilization for one second, if we may, because you just mentioned it. Can you explain to me what ecological civilization, a concept that Xi Jinping has brought forward, what is actually supposed to mean? Well, this is a very uh, broad concept. So Xi Jinping actually didn't come up with the concept of ecological uh, civilization. But in the past 10 years, during his uh, governance, uh, this has become one of the leading philosophy of, of China's governance, uh, which includes, for example, actions of tackling um, domestic air pollution, water pollution, and then gradually we see more and more China taking a leadership role on climate change and biodiversity at the international stage. But again, I think the ecological civilization doesn't really focus on only on ecological side, but also the integration of, of the environment and environmental benefits in um, all decision makings like economic policies. In some of your previous pieces that you've um, written, where you've spoken about, you have pointed out that China's goals might be too conservative, not ambitious enough. What do you think might be the reasons for China's cautiousness in this regard? I actually made often made two sets of different um two different sets of, of, of comments on, on China's climate goals. To start with, I like my TED talk on China's dual carbon uh, pledge actually is titled How Can China uh, Achieve Its Ambitious Climate Pledge? So in a way, these pledges are ambitious. However, at the same time, why tackle, um, why emphasize on conservative, I meant that these pledges can be further, can be more enhanced and be more ambitious. And I think I think I would like to draw the difference here. Um, the main reason is that I think it goes back to the Chinese philosophy. Well, not not it's a very recent one, the uh, an unspoken rule, which is you know under under promise uh, but overachieving. At least in the last ten years, when we look at China's climate policies, especially on energy saving and emission uh, control, we we really see that China over deliver a lot of goals. And that cautiousness, and I, th- uh, and, and I think that's part of the reason of this cautiousness that is to make sure China can achieve and even overachieve any goals that it put on the table and not being caught for not achieving that, which is a big shame. Would you say that that's the point? It's that it would be shameful not to achieve it or it would be seen as weakness to not achieve it? Well, it's, it's really hard to, to define I think, for example, let me give you an example, a very recent example. Uh, the building sectors picking emission goals. Uh, the industrial associations of the building material industries have put forward goals of, for example, the cement industry to peak emissions before 2030, uh, 2023, which is next year. Uh, however, the national uh, target was only set for uh, before 2030, which is aligned, so-called aligned with um, the Bureau of Carbon Goal. And this is not ambitious if we look at the potential and the current status quo of cement industry's uh, current, let's say, progress of, of decarbonization. So in a way, this is not ambitious and this can be further strengthened. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the cautiousness, I, I think, I think there, again, there, there, it comes with all kinds of nuances that I try to elaborate all the time on Twitter, for example, is that the ministries who are in charge of this particular peaking emission plan, they, they simply can't not put forward 
any specific dates before the national target, which is before 2030. But at the same time, uh, scientifically speaking, key emitting sectors must, like key emitting sectors like iron, steel, cement, all these dual high, which dual high industries, which means industries who, who are high in energy consumption and high in emissions must peak emissions way before uh, the deadline so that other... Way before 2030 so that there is some room for others. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So, but but again, ministries, I think they are, um, their hands are tied. They can't put forward any targets ahead of the national targets that can potentially be seen as challenging the, the, the state goal. Would you say that if Western countries would put forward very ambitious sectoral targets, would that increase pressure um, on China to do the same thing and to be even more specific maybe um, in the pre-2030 stage or in the post-2030 stage about kind of sectoral achievements um, in the steel sector, in the cement sector, etc.? Well, um, the development stage of such hard-to-abate industries in China and elsewhere is really um, different. Uh, a lot of industries like um, like steelmaking in China is responsible half of almost half of global production, and the demand has not yet peaked. Of course, we we've seen recent trends in the last uh, year, and start actually starting from last year that the demand might have peaked because of the real estate uh, slump, but it's not a uh, determinated. It, it, the trend the trend is there, but we can't see that the peak has already arrived since. Normally takes a few years for us to, to, to draw that conclusion. So I, I guess it's hard to compare the decarbonization progress in, for example, here in Europe, in mm -hmm. the steel sector, steel making sector with China. However, I do see, for example, if European Union countries in, in the EU can advance much faster on green steel making, uh, for example, with the application of, let's say, hydrogen and uh, CCUS, a lot of uh, cutting-edge um, technologies, and they scaled, scaled that up, China would definitely would like to follow uh, with that lead and compete potentially on these uh, leading technologies. It's been something I've called constructive competition and not necessarily constructive cooperation that some people have been talking about, but I guess in that sector it makes sense to actually then drive, strive for competition. So um, since climate policy is very much a policy founded on, on setting goals, We have talked about this, kind of what are the ambitions that we have. Language is an important instrument at play. How does that affect the kind of Chinese policymakers' approach and the framing at home? Is it really helpful to have this framed domestically as like a climate change agenda? Or does it have to be more framed as an environmental protection agenda? What makes most sense uh, and how is this framed on the Chinese side? Well, there actually, uh, it's, it's a very interesting uh, question. There are many different uh, frameworks, frames, let's say, uh, narratives applied to uh, climate change in China. For example, as we just mentioned, the ecological civilization is mm -hmm. one of them. Uh, and uh, climate security, one of the, you know, energy security, which is a key pillar of China's climate actions, is considered as one of the, I think it's called holistic philosophy on security in China. So let's say the, the, the current leadership, they have very sophisticated views on how climate change sees in its different policy... How it kind of fits into the different policy areas? or Yeah, I think mm -hmm. so. Um, it, it's, a, it's a positive thing um, because we can see that climate change is mainstreamed 
mm-hmm. sort of into different type of policy making. It's not just an environment issue. It's not just an economic issue. It's not just industry policy or energy transition policy. And at the same time, I think I think for the general public, climate change remains uh, an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't talk that much. For example, in in the Henan flood, in the in in the extreme uh, heat wave this summer, and um, last summer as well in in Henan with the extreme flood uh, everywhere in central uh, China. We talk about extreme weather. Some of the scientists would mention climate change, would mention how climate change is behind all these um, extreme weather events. But at the same time, I think the general public still lacks a link, a direct linkage between what, what are happening uh, at site mm-hmm. with the global context. Like global warming is not, it's not just about particular flooding events or droughts. It's something bigger it's a historical event. It's a process that is still evolving, and therefore, I think I think this lack of linkages um, also reflect, let's say, I think in, for social campaigns or for um, policies from the top down to be uh, fully delivered. And we and I think a lot of uh, China watchers are really concerned that um, climate policies in China at the moment are top down. Mm-hmm. Less, there are fewer uh, bottom-up approaches, but again, I think as trend is so new, so trend is so big and complex, we do see a lot of innovations from, for example, the private sectors. We mm-hmm. see civil societies taking the lead uh, in um, educating um, the general public to consume less, uh, to use less plastic, to to have a different lifestyle. Um, we do see that happening. It's just the the ecosystem. It's it's less um, let's say diverse mm-hmm. different role plays they the the power dynamic among them it's it's not let's say evenly distributed the power. But I think the point is quite interesting that you're making saying it, while climate change is actually totally mainstreamed in policy making already it hasn't really entered the policy discourse on the public level so much. Um, it has is more focused on the kind of direct what what people feel on the ground, but that's not necessarily connected to the kind of global climate change debate. More on the kind of impact of extreme weather events. I mean, people care about climate change. Mm-hmm. People care about climate change. Like I remember my first tweet that went viral on the internet uh, was a tweet uh, talking about a taxi driver in Beijing told my friend who works who works at one of the environmental international international environmental groups saying you know we have to tackle climate change because our leader said so and you can see this this is a perfect example that demonstrates people care mm-hmm. because it, the leadership wants people to care um, not because they actually feel the impact or they think is it's important or crucial and, and again I'm not saying I, I would li- I'm not like to generalize this too much people in China, do have different views, mm-hmm. and we have to acknowledge that. And people like me, with also Chinese, are really passionate about climate change. Yeah, exactly. So I think we, we, I would like to go back to the kind of the, the where does China fit into the global picture on all of this? At COP twenty seven, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres commented on a clear breakdown in trust between North and South, and between developed and emerging economies. So how does China fit into this dynamic? Where exactly does it sit between North and South developed and developing countries? Where does it see itself in this debate? I really love this question. Uh, there, there are so many things I can say about, you know, the North and the South division and where China sees. 
it tells so much about China's current position in issues, for example, climate negotiation. When the UNFCCC started all the COP negotiations, China was definitely, at that time, a developing country. After 20, 30 years of development, it, it has arrived to a point. I think at the moment is upper middle um, income or middle income country at least, which brings up uh, the question that China should start to align more with the northern countries to to showcase more responsibilities and contribute, for example, um, some of the climate finance um, mechanisms together with northern countries instead of aligning uh, with the south. Uh, to to position itself as a victim of climate change, because you know if we look into historical uh, responsibilities, China is also the second largest uh, historical uh, emitter, and is going to overtake uh, the the United States and Europe soon, probably in 10, 10 15 years. Um, but again, I think I think all these arguments, uh, the, all these divisions between North and South in climate negotiations, really lies into the interests, and from the Chinese perspective. It was not responsible for the historical emissions mm-hmm. since the Industrial Revolution, and it always portrays itself that you know China's emergence in the past twenty years or twenty thirty years as the world factory, you know, has been let's say absorbing, digesting a lot of emissions domestically uh, for the world. And Basically, also, emissions were outsourced to, to China. And yeah. also by lifting up the living standard of a lot of Chinese people, you, the sh- solving so many uh, social problems, etc. So the argument on the China side is that even emit quite a lot, we did it for the good courses. Mm-hmm. And and of course, if we look at some of the, the, the key indicators, China did a good job in bringing down, for example, carbon intensity, because it started from such a... A bank worried yeah. the place. Um, since two thousand nine, China's uh, Copenhagen pledge is carbon intensity. You know, per uh, GDP output, I think, is more than halved, and that's a tremendous achievement. So we really have to look at China's um, progress. You know, like the bigger picture of it, and in a slightly bigger dimension. Or what would you like to? Yeah, I think a big picture is is the word I'm looking for. All the time we look at news. Titles, for example, China is the biggest emitter. It is, but it's more than just the biggest emitter. It's also the country with the most population still, right? Not e- yet taken by India. And with the largest build-out of renewable energies. Yeah, there's so many, it's just there's so many layers. And one shouldn't simplify the, the conversation or break it down to China's building new coal-fired power plants and is the largest emitter and is going to be the largest historical emitter and anytime soon as well. There's, there's more kind of to the to the debate. Maybe we can stay on the topic of kind of responsibilities a little bit, um, because one of the few outcomes of the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, which was arguably not so super successful as a COP in general, um, but one of the kind of outcomes deliverables was the agreement to establish a loss and damage fund to help poor countries recover from climate disasters. Um, It is a positive step in the right direction, but many fear it will take far too long to realize and it doesn't have the kind of financial heft and weight that it would need to actually tackle these challenges. Is this something China, big developing country, a big developing economy, and uh, could do in the meantime? Or put slightly differently, 
why did China not kind of swing in and save the day um, at COP27 and just put a lot of money on the table for the loss and damage fund? This could have arguably been a relatively cheap way to make some friends and uh, to signal to the global south that China is on board with their demands as well. At the same time, it would have made Europeans very kind of soft on a lot of other approaches potentially. Yeah, and again, again, this dates back to the same question that we were just discussing. China hasn't yet decided. It doesn't want to be seen as a developed country mm-hmm. because it is not yet. And by contributing to this loss and damage fund, it means China will have to accept that is a northern country, that is a developed country. It's like a role change, basically, that it would have and, um, implied. And I think that is really the bottom line for uh, negotiations on climate finance at, at this point. I still recall back in Lima, I think, 2000, uh, in 2014 and, two, and before Paris as well, China launched this South-South uh, Climate uh, Cooperation Fund as its way to uh, contribute mm-hmm. to climate finance as a developing country. Not instead of contributing to the global climate fund as a developed country, and 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 for China this is really the bottom line. It's it's still the principle for it that it can't compromise on that fact of whether it is a developed country or not. It kind of can't go that step of saying we've now reached that level with all of the consequences that kind of come with it. Yeah, and and I think I think again back to back to the dual carbon uh, pledge. It it comes with the same logic actually. For example, China chose and have chosen 2060 as its deadline for mm-hmm. carbon uh, neutrality. This is in the is is the middle value between 2050 for developed countries and 2070 for developing countries mm-hmm. according to the IPCC. And and that for the Chinese policymakers is is a step forward that we have done what we need to be done as a developing country, but we also acknowledge that as a developed country to be um, in the next few years, ne- next few days to come, we would like to take slightly more responsibilities mm-hmm. to show our leadership. But again, how that would unpack in the fu- in future climate negotiations, uh, we we have to wait and see. Maybe one slightly more technical issue that that I would like to uh, tackle because it has been the subject also of latest, you know, last year's U.S.-China cooperation mechanisms. China announced its plan to cut down methane emissions uh, at COP27 um, and, and a willingness to seek cooperation on the issue. And cooperation is something that's hard to find these days between China and Western countries. So I guess it's an important step or an important message. But what does it mean for the for the climate policy moving forward? Because China has been relatively specific about its carbon neutrality goals, but not necessarily including all greenhouse gas emissions. Well, um, the 2030 goal uh, for carbon picking uh, only refers to uh, CO2 emissions. But my understanding is that the, the carbon neutrality goal covers all uh, greenhouse gases, uh, including methane. And in China's long strategy, long-term strategy document also submitted to the UNFCCC last year, it also specifies um, that China will tackle non-CO2 emissions. But here, I think, I think in terms of methane emissions, the, the specific action plan to tackle uh, missing emissions is already in shape, according to, um, to uh, Mr. Xi Jinping uh, at COP27. It's only an issue of time when that climate uh, specific climate action plan would be introduced uh, formally. And from what we understand is that that plan will cover a lot of standard and rule setting domestically, um, it will tackle key areas of emitters uh, in methane 
in the agriculture sector, for example, and some oil and gas. There will be cooperations, I think, on monitoring, data sharing, you know, technology to mitigate uh, mitigations, etc. Um, but but again, if if you ask me whether this will be uh, the area of cooperation, my answer is certain. Um, but I don't think this will be the only area of cooperation between China and, let's say, the West per se. China is still, for example, between China and Germany, and China and France, technical exchange are still happening. Mm-hmm. Even during last year, uh, difficult period of COVID exchange, such such cooperation dialogues are still happening. But I think this is kind of the, the point that we have to be very specific about what cooperation actually is supposed to mean. So technical cooperation is what you're saying is still possible at the moment. Larger kind of multilateral commitments, big NDC updates, national determined contribution updates from China, maybe not to be expected right now. Big kind of declaratory policies um, where there's joint uh, action on climate finance, maybe not to be expected. But on the technical side, uh, working together is still possible. And at the same time, kind of China is pursuing its policies towards um, carbon neutrality and is pursuing its policies towards um, greening its own economy. Is that correct? Well, I, I think I think as someone who has been watching China's climate policy in the last over over a decade, I think after the peak period of 2020-2021, when China was really active in the global climate space, mm-hmm. like the announcement of the carbon goal did inject momentum when, you know, during um, the COVID pandemic, a lot of countries were hesitant about how do we recover? Mm-hmm. How green sh- should we go uh, in the recovery packages, stimulus plans? That China China did play a significant role there to inject that uh, momentum. However, I think, I think as domestic situations became less clear on a lot of things, the ambition, I think it stabilized we don't see more signs of enhanced ambition mm-hmm. yet. And of course, we talked about, you know, countries should submit their enhanced updated NDC uh, to the UNFCCC. China didn't do this this year. And my estimation is that the, the current economic situation domestically might post upon any ready well, any. It may make it harder for China to kind of peak early and to to move forward with an ambitious agenda because it may need to inject um, a certain kind of amount of economic productivity um, into its sector that is more carbon intensive. Is that what you mean? No, not exactly. I, I think actually the economic downturn would have a sig- significant impact on China's decarbonization on the positive side mm-hmm. because it might accelerate the peak emissions of a lot of industrial sectors like iron, steel and cement making. I also doubt that with the real estate slump, that China would continue such large-scale heavy infrastructure-led recovery in the next few years to come. But but what I I was trying to say is that there might be some room for enhanced ambition, but the current economic and social uh, environment at the moment might might have uh, resulted um, reconsideration of further enhanced ambition on climate change to be announced mm-hmm. very soon. It doesn't mean ambitions are not there. Ambitions are still there. It's just whether China is ready to commit more ambition. Are they committed the and communicated? So it's a question of more of the framing of it rather than the actual 
things that are happening on the ground. Yeah, like so many sectoral picking emission deadlines, cement before 2023, steel making before 2025, these are really low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, and they can be achieved, they can even be overachieved. China is not yet ready to commit. They continue with, as I just mentioned, uh, peak before 2030 for such yeah. industrial sectors. That can be interpreted as a lack of ambition or cautiousness, as you asked in the beginning of this yeah. episode. But I think this is, again, carries, I think, it is, is a result of so many things. And, and I wouldn't be surprised that when economic started to take off a little bit more, let's say stabilized GDP uh, rebound to 5%, China, mm. China might uh, come up forward with more ambitious plans on. It is just a difficult domestic situation generally where as much leverage or as much kind of leeway as one can have as possible, as much as wiggle room as the Chinese leadership kind of can have as possible is a good thing because one doesn't quite know what to expect on the other end. What doesn't quite, the Chinese leadership doesn't quite know how to get out of this economic situation, doesn't quite know how to get out of zero COVID to be quite frank probably, and will need to leave all of basically all the potential options on the table that it has to play economic cards but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will all have to be played and that we have to look at a more resource-intensive uh, recovery plan. It could also be different. That's, that's kind of the argument, right? Yeah, I, th- I think you captured it quite well. Uh, the go-to argument would be China hasn't raised ambitions so that it can leave rooms for um, carbon-intensive sectors to continue to grow as a way to boost its economy. But my argument, my sense is that it doesn't directly yeah. indicate anything like that. It could in- also indicate the government currently preoccupied with so many priorities, like how to sort of, um, how to get out of the zero COVID uh, policy, for uh, for example. Maybe it hasn't really come up with a plan on how to reboost the economy, a comprehensive plan, mm-hmm. for example. So they are also waiving different options. And, and again, with renewable energies, for example, um, really leading the EV, really leading, and the market it's showing that they will be winning. They are already winning compared to fossil uh, yeah. solutions. So I don't see the logic for the smart policy makers sitting uh, in Zhongnan High to not make that smart choice um, on how they should recover. And and again, also back to some of the questions you asked at the very beginning of the episode, the academics, the, the policy advisors, they are still very, very open-minded I think, at least on climate change, mm-hmm. they are willing to listen and they're willing to cooperate. They're willing to share. And I think by far, China's climate policies are well informed by science. And that's that's a great thing. And that's something that is not necessarily the case in all other policy areas. And therefore, I think this is a, a quite specific one in, in a way. The last thing we would like to do on this podcast always is to pick our guests' brain a little bit on what to pay attention to coming out of China's internal conversation among leading thinkers, uh, among leading intellectuals. If you think across all the different policy areas, including climate, but others as well, what's the one area in which you think Chinese intellectual debates are currently the most interesting? What are the debates that are happening that an average just Western observer of the discourse just doesn't clock, doesn't see what that they are going on? Well, I would say the zero COVID policy. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the people who are unclear where uh, this debate is going. How we clearly know that this dynamic zero COVID policy cannot sustain. Mm-hmm. Um, we also don't 
know how it can be eliminated or lifted um, gradually, or if not out of sudden, it is just is really hard to predict. But it has to happen mm-hmm. uh, so that a lot of other policies can be in place, so that the society can function again, so that so many assumptions that we talked about on climate change can mm-hmm. resume back to normal, so that we can actually get back to those conversations. Thank you so much, Liang Jiao. Thank you、uh, very, very much for、um, kind of engaging in the conversation with us, for having this discussion with us, for making us smarter about what Chinese thinkers think. We hope that you have enjoyed listening to the Inside China podcast. If you have, we'd like to encourage you to subscribe on whatever platform you have downloaded this episode on. And while you are there, feel free to give us a positive rating and a five-star review, as that helps bringing other people to this podcast. We will put all links to Hong Chao's publications to our website at ecfr.eu/china. But for now, from Yong Chao and Yanka Erdl, it is goodbye. The researcher of this podcast was Sonia Li. The editor of this episode was Malina Rieden. <laughs>